1: Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, and here at the Finding Holy Podcast, we want to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. So this is a podcast for you if you long for a life that feels spacious, but you're stuck with dishes and laundry and a to-do list a mile long. This is a podcast for you if you long to integrate what you know with who you are and how you live. And this is a podcast for you if you need a gentle invitation into the ways of Jesus right in the middle of your actual life. So join me along with authors, pastors, artists, and activists to how they connect the big things of life into the ordinary habits of their days. And to help you on your journey, you'll get one small step at the end of each episode to take with you into your week. You'll also get to hear my guests' laundry routines, because big things matter. But... So does the laundry. Here's a bit more about my guest today. Stephen Garber is Professor of Marketplace Theology and Director of the Program in Leadership, Theology, and Society at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Through his many years as a professor, he has become a teacher of many people in many places, serving as a consultant to foundations, corporations, and universities. His books include Visions of Vocation, The Fabric of Faithfulness, and he has contributed to books called Faith Goes to Work and Get Up Off Your Knees Preaching the YouTube Catalog. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to talk about YouTube, but we did get to talk about his most recent book called The Seamless Life. It's been put out by Interversity Press. It's a beautiful small companion with essays and photos, and we talk about what does it look like to live a life that's integrated and whole? A quick apology just for some of the background noise. I hope you can tune it out because this is a great conversation.
2: All right. It's wonderful to welcome Stephen Garber to the Finding Holy podcast. He's the recent author of the book, The Seamless Life, a tapestry of love and learning, worship and work. So thanks for being here, Stephen.
3: The gift to be with you, Ashley.
2: Thank you. So I loved your book. I've actually put it on my husband's a nightstand. I said this would be such lovely Sabbath reading for you, especially my husband's a church planter, and just like little bits, little doses of beauty and thought that doesn't feel entirely taxing, <laughs> um, but really kind of welcomes us deeper into an integrated, whole, seamless life. Tell us a little bit about that image of the seamless life. It came from your grandfather,
3: right? So the book is an unusual effort for me and for the publisher because it's both essays and photos. Mm-hmm. Like most good ideas, it was a good idea at the beginning. It got harder the longer we worked at it um, because it was just hard to, for IVP to actually count the right number of pages and, you know, get the photos in the places that they should be and the right sizes and all those things were difficult for everybody to work on. But yeah. the first photo in essay is about the idea of seamlessness. And I took a photo of my grandfather's saddle blanket and... Uh, So it's actually in my office here in Vancouver, and um, it's a beautiful Navajo blanket. And the story simply is that my grandfather and grandmother had a ranch in southwestern Colorado, and they had cattle. And I was there as a little boy in the summertime, coming from California, actually, to Colorado. And and, uh, one day a Navajo man came to the ranch and asked if he could get a cow. But he didn't have any money. But he had a Navajo blanket, and I was not, as a four or five year old, part of the negotiations. All of a sudden, the man had a cow, and my grandfather had a new blanket for his horse. And uh, so it wasn't a fancy pants. In some ways, I'm, I'm not sure that people were collecting Navajo blankets at the time. It was more right. of a blanket he used in the work of the ranch. And so he did that and <clears throat> got sweat stained and horse smelly, I'm sure. And when he died, you know, some years later, I was the grandchild who got the blanket.
4: And, mm. uh,
3: so it's been a prize in my life, and thinking about the idea of seamlessness, I began looking at the blanket again. I'm looking at it right now, actually. And mm. I mean, it's distinct. It has red and black, and kind of cream and gray, and the different colors of, of course, goats and sheep, and, and the four corners area there. <clears throat> um, but you have to look very, very carefully to see any seams in the blanket, even hand-woven as it was on the looms of these peoples living in the, you know, the great southwest. Um, it isn't obvious from a, a look at it, really, and I don't think anything, I'm not a romantic, I don't think perfect is possible in this life. I don't think any of us get there in, in anything we do in this life.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um but seamlessness, to me, is an image of the way things are sh- should be in the world, the way things ought to have been, things that there'll be they'll someday they will be, you know. My favorite verses in the whole Bible is the last verses of Zechariah's prophecy, to all this terror and horror and wrong and injustice, and finally the very last words are, when the day of the Lord comes, finally, someday, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord, mm. and uh, this most ordinary thing in the whole of life, really, every house as a cooking pot, whether it's a high-end $800 fire engine (laughs) cooking pot from a fancy-pants kitchen store, or whether it's a have been in villages in Western Kenya where they actually make their own plots out of clay of the the ground around them. Mm -hmm.
4: Everyone
3: Mm -hmm. has a cooking pot, but this most ordinary thing be called holy to the Lord.
4: Mm.
3: To me, the idea of seamlessness is that to see that heaven and earth actually do touch each other in this broken, you know, now-but-not-yet world, Mm. where God made a world where, in fact, it wasn't supposed to be so fragmented, so departmentalized or compartmentalized. And so the sense of wound and brokenness pervading us all day long. But that the longing we have, I think, as human beings is to see things more coherently, mm-hmm. more seamlessly.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: The Image of the book really is carried from beginning to end is, you know, could we actually see all of life, love and learning, worship and work as a tapestry?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, so beautiful. And I think it's, it's so what we long for in our very kind of boxed up um Compartmentalized lives so how is this concept of vocation something that has kind of rooted your own work and how does that inform this idea of how does the idea of vocation inform this sense of a seamless life
3: we should take a long walk together actually I would love it Um, but maybe just to say a couple of things about it Uh, so if my grandfather's life shaped my life my father's life did too my father was a University of California scientist and uh, I thought I would be someday too, but I didn't like biology in high school. <laughs> not, not really, but, but I remember watching him as I got to be more of an adolescence and moving out of adolescence into adulthood and beginning to take more seriously who he was and what he did and how he thought about things. And I, I realized on the one hand, he was really good at what he did uh, uh, in his work, uh, among the best in the world at what he did, I think probably, and from his colleagues would say. Uh, But it was somebody who actually prayed every morning as he went into the laboratory to see into the meaning of his work,
4: Hmm.
3: not only to be a kind man, which is the secretaries at the research center always said, your father is such a kind man, he's so interested in me. And and he was that kind of a person, and that matters to all of us.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: To see into the meaning of my work was his prayer every day, to see the questions that are implicit in my work to be able to see the relationship between my questions this week and this year with what I was working on a year ago and five years ago, and to see the connectedness of what I'm doing in my, in my research. Uh, I began to, I think, about the same time I was beginning to have the word worldview run through my mind. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I didn't have one, I just had never thought about the word worldview before. I remember, actually, you know, this was a California boy. That I was, <laughs> the, You know, imagery of, they all should be California girls.
2: So. <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: uh, but I remember thinking, if this idea of a worldview is going to make any difference in my life, it really make sense of my life? Someday I'd have to get to art and politics and economics and all that. But I probably should begin with girls.
2: <laughs> of course.
3: <laughs> and I remember thinking, if I can't get that right, been to, to rethink this, to reframe this in my in my heart and my mm-hmm. mind,
4: mm-hmm.
3: probably it would never be true in politics either. I would say that my vision of, you know, of... Seamlessness and have and seen vocation written into that is that you know that who we are and why we are what we do with our lives has to grow out of our deepest commitments.
2: Mm. Do you have a vocational statement for yourself?
3: Yeah, I've only had a few epiphanies of my life. I never went looking for one. You know that's not what epiphanies are. I don't think really. But um, maybe you're just surprised walking around the corner one one night or walking upstairs one night and you think, "Wow, that's interesting. I never thought about that before." Really. And, and those have been my experiences just being surprised by all of a sudden thinking now I think I see something I didn't see before. Um, but uh, um, I think that um, one of those along the way was uh, beginning to th- see that I cared very deeply about the way we learn and what learning means. Um, and PhD actually was in the philosophy of learning, but especially focused on the relation of belief to behavior uh, and uh, the insight or the thesis eventually being looking at um, how belief becomes behavior mm. over time in someone's life. Uh, so my interest has for the years of my life always been about how does what we believe about the world get worked out in the way we
2: live in the world. I have found much comfort uh, mm. in, in this idea of vocation, not simply being kind of focus on a career or a place even, right? That how am I called to be present? How am I called to tell the gospel story to my children or, you know, on a stage or in a book? Um, How can I help reignite people's imaginations for the kingdom of God? And Mm -hmm. so that has given me over a lot of years (laughs) and a lot of kicking and screaming, uh, a bit of hope um, to feel like it, that it all matters. Mm -hmm. But that is something I feel like is, is sorely needed and really foreign to, to most Western Christians. How would you propose we begin to start asking those questions of ourselves or, um, you know, what are the habits? You know, you were talking about your PhD and the connection between belief and behavior. What are Maybe what are some of your habits that help create that seamless narrative for you between what you believe and what you do?
4: Yeah,
3: that's a very good question, actually. Though I was never alive during her lifetime, and it's just sort of a strange thing to say that a French woman named Simone Weil <laughs> would be a sub- substantial teacher in my life. Uh, I've been quite taken by images that she offered to us, um, and I've written a lot about her in an earlier book called Visions of Vocation, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, she had a, an awkwardly titled essay, which I think all university students and professors ought to read, actually. Um, but it's awkwardly titled, nothing very sexy about it at all. It isn't like The Seamless Life or
2: anything.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's awkward, and it's called Reflections on the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God. So you can see it goes on way too long.
2: Right, right. <laughs>
3: <A> You're <very laughs> really
2: allowed to have five, five words now in your titles, right? <laughs>
3: a very lovely and rich and profound essay, Reflections on the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God. And uh, given that your podcast is called Finding Holy, I think you might be fascinated by it, actually. Yeah. Um, what she argues is that the task of being a Christian student is to learn to pay attention.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Learn to pay attention. And uh, she roots this in the story we call The Good Samaritan. And what she argues is that, you know, as Jesus tells his tale, um, that these two religious leaders who are on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho, who pass this beaten, bruised man, they don't pay attention to him. They have no eyes to see, in fact, the reality before, their, before them. And they have theologically, historically, sociologically, they can't make sense of any need that this man might have that implicates them. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And to quickly jump through the story, the Samaritan, of course, has learned to pay attention. And he sees a neighbor in need and, you know, and responds, and we know the story, basically. But What Simone de argues is that when you pay attention, and you see where heaven and earth touch each other in the life, the concreteness of your life and mine, that study begins to be sacramental. Hmm. Because sacram- sacraments, whatever we see them to be, um, there's somewhere where heaven touches earth. You know, in the Protestant tradition, of course, it is. We talk about you know the Eucharist, the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, um, and what are they? Well, they're ordinary you know experiences of life. We all know water, we all know bread and, and drink, bread and wine, or bread and whatever we're going to drink. Um, and they're not by themselves. In some ways, we say these are set off as holy, and that's more eucharistic way. Um, but in I think God's world, they are holy. Mm-hmm. They are like that. You know, Zechariah prophecy about even the cookie pots would be called holy to the Lord. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like Peter saying to the scattered church, you know, be holy in everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, to me, you know, for to learn from Simone Ve about this, um, I think it's it's been very important to me to see um, the very. Uh, way that I understand the work of being a student, to being a professor, is to long for, to pray for, to labor towards my students having eyes to see the reality of their worlds, Mm -hmm. worlds of studies in general, whether this studies in biology or history or literature or poetry or politics. I mean, I would say the whole of reality in in reality is sacramental if we have eyes to see that. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And the problem is not that it's that with God's world it's actually with us not having eyes to see.
4: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Alexander Schmemann for the life of the world. Okay. And what are the, you know what are the habits and practices and very small acts of paying attention, like you were saying, that orient me towards that truth instead of getting That's mired that. into yeah. you know the the circumstances the.
3: Yeah. yeah, I got had news last night, late in the evening, about the daughter-in-law of dear friends who died of cancer last night, and she's been, you know, longing for life for a year and a half, I suppose, and just more and more, you know, diagnoses and sorrows and weights of words and what this means and whether she'll live into the next year or not, and finally last night, after a long, long hope for life, she died, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I. Was in communication with my good friends about it, and, and uh, I thought about you know the these weighty but very wonderful words from Tolkien given in between Gandalf and Sam Gamgee, um, you know the conversations about eschatology really, and about mm-hmm. the way life turns out to be day by day in the light of our beliefs about the future, and of course the language, the words are, you know, someday, someday really, everything sad will become untrue. Yeah. And, uh, um, I have long believed actually that we live in light of eschatological commitments. All of us do as human beings in the world, whether we're, you know, Marxists or Hindus or, you know, Jews or Muslims or Christians, you know, you can be the most secular materialist and, you know, hedonist living off the beaches of, you know, Orange County and (laughs) surfing all day long, really. Then you realize, of course, it can't be forever and ever and ever, really. And, uh. Um, but we all live eschatologically in that sense. Um, so I think, in terms of you know habits to form in our hearts, I think one of them actually is to to be able to hold together more honestly and truthfully the relation between what we believe to be true about the future and how we live life today.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: So if Zechariah is saying to the people of Israel, someday. When the day of the Lord comes someday, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord. You begin to get some sense, of course, that, you know, that, <clears throat> that that's to be true right now. It's to have eyes to see them that it's all holy to the Lord, actually. Mm-hmm. Married, you have four kids. I'm married, I have five kids, and now grandchildren. And I would always say this, actually, that my wife's kisses don't save me. Mm-hmm. From, but they're not just, you know, secular kisses either. The only categories we have are sacred and secular. Mm -hmm. As if that somehow accounts for life or, you know, the things of of God and things not of God, you know, it just doesn't really adequately account for things. This earlier book on vocation I wrote, it has a subtitle, Common Grace for the Common Good. Mm -hmm. And I believe quite deeply in common grace and common graces. And they make sense in my wife's kisses, you know, they don't save me from my sin. You know. They make sense of the glory of Southern California beaches and you think you think, well, it isn't salvific here, but oh God in heaven this is a beautiful gift to me really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they don't make, mm-hmm. they don't, oranges, you know, in the middle of winter don't save you from your sin. But you think, oh, this is a good gift from you, oh Lord. And mm-hmm, yes, you yes. Know? So if we don't have a category, theologically speaking, of common grace, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to make sense of the ordinary things of life as actually meaning something.
1: We'll be back in just a minute with the rest of our interview with Stephen Garber.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
1: And here's the rest of our conversation about vocation, place, longing, and a seamless life with Stephen Garber.
3: You know, we are talking before about the strange name of Sacramento. Mm-hmm. I grew up in California, and you, I actually lived in Davis for a while, so pretty close to Sacramento. Yep. And uh, I never knew this until I began to think about these bigger questions I've given my life to, these other questions of my life. But you know, this story very simply said is in the second generation after Father Junipero said, uh, Walked up the coastline of California planting mission churches from San Diego to San Juan Capistrano to San you know, Francisco eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, the next generation, uh, also a Captain Morega, the name of the one who was his military companion in his plant church planning, but the next generation was also a Captain Morega. And uh, he was the first European that we know of to cross over the Berkeley Oakland Hills. If you can imagine that in the Bay Area. Yeah. Crossing, thinking, well, what's behind those hills, really? And actually, the early maps of California, done by the Spaniards, had an inland ocean. California was an island, a long island. Didn't know really what was behind. But his exclamation, which is in Spanish, and I will I'll give you the English version of it this morning. But, you know, astounded by the blue sky and the flowers in the fields and the birds singing, the fish in the water, and all that was so grand and exquisite. He said in Spanish, "She said this is as beautiful as a holy sacrament itself." Hmm. Um, and you know, most Californians never thought about that. Of course, and I don't think we have to be to have that in mind all day long. But in some ways, it was having eyes to see that, in fact, in these ordinary wonders of God's world, um, that this is as beautiful as the Holy Sacrament itself. And you know, one of the essays in the book is about—I think I called it something like—vocations as you know sacramental signposts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's an image that's helpful to us to, to see these the work of our lives as sacramental signposts of both the reality of God's work in the world today, but also in some ways a signpost for what someday will be eschatologically.
4: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. You're know, not going to heaven. That is never the promise of the Bible. Right. Yeah. We're actually, you to be drawn in by the great grace of God to a new heaven and a new earth, mm-hmm. and there'll be continuity between this life and the next. So because you're a Californian, I'll just say this. With I love California. I think it's really normative in my sort of thinking mm-hmm. about how things people should be. I have said to God on high, as reverently as I can imagine, you know, that if you're taking names for the new heavens and new mm-hmm. earth, he's put me down for several thousands of years in Santa Barbara.
2: Oh, yes. Tell us, um, you know, just a few phrases. You talk about the world being wounded. You talk, um, there's a lot of... Uh, phrases from the Narnia Chronicles, uh, you know, um, throughout your book. What what other writers or thinkers have kind of captured your imagination? So, I would
3: say Tolkien's imagery is pretty deep for me. Mm-hmm. And of course, Lewis's is too, I I think about my life in the world in light of the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm. Just do, you know, I hardly ever spend a day without coming back to further up and further in.
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) It's It's true of my marriage, it's true of the work of my life, it's true of life, really.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we get to our last question, I did want to ask you the ways in which you have found it important to pay attention to your own place um, and how I'd love for you to just to talk about how places form our loves. My book with IVP finding holy in the suburbs really starts out with, with the whole idea that places they do form our loves. And I think in lots of places, especially like suburban places that feel planned and perhaps, you know, detached from the land itself or, um, not urban and kind of culturally centric we can tend to think that place is simply something that we create uh, that is that doesn't really have any bearing on how we go about our work in the world mm-hmm. so and um, yeah i'd love to hear free from you about how does place form us and what do we do as christians to love our places and i realize that you know that could be a book in itself but
3: and a long walk with you <laughs> So I mentioned having done work doing work for the Mars Corporation. Along the way, I began to give some of the executive's essays by Wendell Berry to read. And finally, the question was, can we ever ever talk to this guy? I said, well, let me figure out if we can do that. But eventually, we flew down to Kentucky to his farm and spent a day with him. Yeah. Talking through this idea of the economics of mutuality. Right. Which has been the project as we've named this. Um, with Wendell Berry, and that somewhat seemed a funny thing to do with bringing L&M's to Wendell Berry's.
4: <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, but we did, and he gave us a very good day and a very important word at the end of the day. He said, you know, if you want to make money for, for a year, you have to ask certain questions. Making money for 100 years ask, makes you ask other questions. So, mm. But people you know, eventually we brought his thinking into the boardroom of the Marsh Corporation and the CEO and the CFO and everybody else who were higher ups in the organization. And and the CEO said at a certain point, I want to meet this man. So I called Barry one night and said, you know, would you ever be interested in this? And he's somebody whose work I have loved and I've been shaped by. So, but he laughed at me. we <laughs> were <laughs> sort of like, that's crazy. You know, why would you want to talk to me? You know, and I said back to him, you know, um, i wouldn't go to all the work i do taking your taking your thinking out into the world into the boardrooms i walk into if i didn't think what you were saying was true mm-hmm. now it can't just be true for nice people who live in nice places you know, like you on a farm on the kentucky river you know um, it has to be true in washington dc too and it has to be true in los angeles too in paris and london and jakarta and sao paulo i mean it has to be true if it's true it's true like uh, crucially, to who we are as human beings. And if we, in a cavalier attitude, say, well, you know, mm-hmm. I can do what I want to do, I can live where I want to live, and I'll find my own way to have a life, thank you.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I would say that there's something crucial to our identity as human beings about understanding the way rootedness in people and place matters, that we will not flourish in this life if we think it doesn't matter, actually.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. and a great curse of larger LA and extending down to Orange County these days and beyond, you know. I mean, if I were to say, there's a great curse of a a megapolis like that. It's anonymous. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be on the highways of the world all day long and people don't know you and walk into the, you know, the grocery stores of the world all day long and probably they won't know you again and, you know, go into this place and they don't know you again and, you know, I mean... And so to, to you realize that it's not a good thing for a human heart to not be known. Right. It probably is the most the deepest longing all of us have is to be known. Nothing thing that matters probably more to us than to be known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to to create worlds where we're not known because we've disregarded the meaning of place it's difficult i would say that's actually it cuts us off at the knees of our hearts because we will not flourish And you know, when i wrote the visions of vocation book some years ago i thought where would i want to go to write this And i thought i think the place the air i most want to breathe in the whole world is southwestern colorado where my grandparents had a ranch when i was a boy so i found a kind of a southwestern b&b setting a little cabin in a you know old place old to history and Mm-hmm. there was no house to see and no people to see and it, there was no humidity and there was a breeze blowing all day long i could sit outside you know the whole day and couldn't see anybody i, I could see a cow every once in a while and my wife said look there's a bear over there today they were walking across the creek you know with two cubs but that was as close as anybody got to us and i could just spend hour after hour writing really and i think some places like that nourish us you know uh, and uh Mm. So I do think that if we act as if they don't, we are in some ways cutting off, you know, one of the most important roots to our own humanity.
2: Mm. That's so very true. Thank you. That's, I mean, that kind of helps us reframe, too. I mean, you, this this idea of, you know, the commuter culture where you are unknown and displaced um, in an effort to attain more success by kind of worldly metrics is actually really impoverishing. Yes. Our humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could talk for hours, and I would love to one day. <laughs> but um, I would appreciate just hearing your laundry routine. You know, as we talked about the cooking pots, um, mm-hmm. and our you know our walks, our paying attention, our you know our worldviews, our theology, uh, living eschatologically. I think the laundry factors into that too. So I'd love <laughs> to hear what is your laundry routine, and yeah. Where do you find a bit of, of, of joy in it? Or do you, or is it just... I
3: mean, I think, you know, everything in life has can have its own ordinariness, maybe even tedium. Right. But uh, years ago, I was had the sense I was going to be sick for a few days, and I thought, ugh, um, I took off Charles Dickens' book, David Copperfield, to read for the days I was going to be sick, and there were these words that jumped off the page, and they've jumped into my life ever since then. But it was David reflecting on his short life and love with his darling wife who's dying upstairs, and Dora is her name, and he concludes that trifles make the sum of life. And uh, that's just true, really, and it's true about all of us, and it's true about doing laundry. Mm -hmm. Trifle in some ways, it isn't all of life, it shouldn't be, for most of us at least, but... Mm -hmm. We have had a we have a house in Virginia still in Washington DC that we're gonna go back to this summer and and so in some ways our laundry routines there are different than they are living in a the twelfth floor of an apartment building in Vancouver yep. block from the University of British Columbia and Region College and you know, apartment living, of course, is very different. And we walk, get an elevator down to the basement of our apartment building, and you know, put you know, coins in, or our fo- app and our phone now to know uh, oh, that's cool to get the laundry done that way. And you know, and I would say that you know, my wife and I have a pretty egalitarian life together. And I cook breakfast every day for for us, and other things that we do. And I shop, she shops, and she does laundry, I do laundry, and um, and you know. The other night she was, I think we, she did the laundry, and but she came home and she put the basket in our, in our bedroom, and, and I thought, well, okay, you know, I'll just fold it tonight, you know, and so, you know, um, everyone's socks, everyone's underwear, everyone's, you know, shirts and put away, and I mean, all the things that have to get done in the course of a week of life, you know, it's pretty ordinary, but in some ways, trifles make the sum of life. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I love it and yeah it seems like you have kind of a almost a wordless little dance you know a good fr- a good friendship as you yeah. kind of go to and fro amongst all the household duties um yeah it just reminds me of the annie dillard quote right that how how we spend a day of course is how we spend our lives so. exactly right right well thank you for bringing some immense thought and care to to our dailiness, um, and. For, helping us see and pay attention uh to the things that that matter not as something abstract but something that's deeply embedded and woven into the fabric of our lives
3: so it's nice to be with you and to see something about your life to even closet it as you are
2: yes (laughs) yes yes my little podcast closet (laughs) well thank you steven for being with us
3: you're very welcome god bless you okay
1: Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stephen Gerber. His book, A Seamless Life, is a wonderful companion. It might make good Sabbath reading for you just to read a few pages a week. Um, It might also make a wonderful little companion for you during Easter as we move in these last few days from Lent um, into Good Friday and then into Easter Sunday. Though many of us are still confused and suffering little losses and big losses now because of the COVID-19 epidemic, I wanted to leave you not only with a good conversation that helps connect some dots for us, but also with one small step proceeding from my conversation with Stephen Garper. I'd love for you to take just a piece of paper, make a cross in the middle of it, and label each square, work, rest, worship, and play. And maybe just take five minutes and free associate. What are the things that are involved in your work life? What are the things involved in your rest? And how do you play? How do you worship? And then maybe just take a highlighter or a different colored pen, circle some things that come out in each of those things to begin to try to get to a sentence or two that can help kind of orient you even now during this COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe you find that there's something deep inside of you to share the gospel with other people. Maybe it's that you are doing reparative work um, with justice and mercy in your local community and you can also do that in your home. Maybe it's that you are helping incite the imaginations of people. I'd love to hear as you do that exercise between work, play, worship, and rest what you come up with. You can find just a quick little download on my website at the show notes. And you can click on over to get that. It's at aahales.com slash podcast. And if you click on Stephen Garber's episode, you'll find that quick download. You can also find a download for pandemic resources that I'm giving away. And what that looks like is just some anchoring points and a way to continue to celebrate Holy Week. I'd be pleased if you found those resources helpful to you in this time. And remember, friends, that no matter what that we have a steadfast anchor for our souls and i pray that you would trust in jesus that anchor remember all of these things big things matter but so does the laundry and i bet you have a lot of it right now